0: We can't tell people to change your diet. We know that never works because you go back to the things that you love. We need to fit our plant-based meat into the dishes that you love to eat. We
1: are here today for 100 Climate Conversations, a project that uh, I think is absolutely crucial right now, a project that I think is going to spark some really interesting conversation and debate around an issue that needs to be made more accessible to the day-to-day of people's lives. We are in the gorgeous Powerhouse Museum and it's so nice to be back. There's so much change in this building. 100 Climate Conversations is a really significant project for the museum. We're recording these conversations live. They will become part of a bigger exhibition that will have a house in the museum. And you'll see that if you want to take a look after today's conversation. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land we're on, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. My name is Padabud. Now, to... This lovely man sitting next to me, Nick Hazel, is the founder and chief executive of V2 Food, the innovative startup, worked closely with the CSIRO, Australia's Leading Research and Development Agency, to develop plant-based meat. Nick spent a decade in senior research and development roles at PepsiCo and Mars Food Australia, having begun his career as a manufacturing engineer. You are incredibly passionate about reducing meat consumption while supplying consumers with something, you know, that is tasty. It's good. It's nutritious. It's all those things that we want from food. How does this work that you're doing connect with, you know, the bigger issue we're discussing here today, the two big Cs, climate change?
0: Meat is a, is a real problem. It's, it's, a, it's at a global scale, you could almost say that it, almost a third of the problem of climate change is associated with our sort of meat-eating uh, habit. And, and how does that work? Well, um, ruminant animals, they uh, emit methane. So that, that's a direct sort of carbon dioxide problem. But it's actually more than that. It's, it's, more, it's more about the food system. If you look at the average farmer in the world, what is a farmer doing? Well, are they growing sort of vegetables for us? Well, no, the average farmer is actually growing feedstock to feed the pigs and the chickens and the cows that we like to eat. So the vast majority of agricultural land on the planet is devoted to our meat-eating habit, our animal meat-eating habit. The the downside is is we keep eating more and more meat. Now, in Australia, we're actually declining, but the rest of the world is catching up. And we're going to run out of land really soon. So if you you see all these horrendous pictures of the Amazon being, being destroyed, why are we doing that? Well, it's actually to create more land, to grow more feedstock, to feed the chickens and the pigs. And we're running out of land. So 70% of the of the world's land is already for human use, for agriculture. So there's very little left, and we're biting into it now. So the only way to to solve this is by reducing the the global consumption of animal meat.
1: I'm constantly trying to connect, say, for example, my family, you know, I go to a family dinner and I try and bring up conversations around climate change because it's something that I'm personally interested in and I'm watching my footprint and I want to be conscious. And my family just kind of yawns, you know, they don't really engage and they don't take, because the things that they connect with around climate change are the doom and gloom. Mm. And they don't feel like they have these sort of access points in order to contribute to a better planet. And I think that's because they're also programmed that Australia, not just culturally from, in in terms of my Palestinian Lebanese heritage, Australians are also huge meat eaters. Culturally, we love meat. Mm. Why do you think that is? I mean, I don't know anywhere else in the world that has lamb ads. You know, our lamb ads every year are uh, a cultural institution. You know, they're an event. Why do you think that is? Why is Australia such a meat loving country?
0: We grow a lot of great meat. I mean, the meat industry in Australia, we export 70 or 80% of it to the world. And actually Australia will continue to export. The, the, The world needs more meat. Um, so there's no worry. I, I keep saying to the meat industry, don't worry. You know, make sure that the meat that is grown in Australia is sustainable. And, and I know there's work being done on that, so you can make meat more sustainable. But we grow a lot of it, and, and meat's always been aspirational. Meat is aspirational for humans. So and how, if you, much,
1: how much meat do we actually eat? Do you have the numbers? Uh,
0: I think Australia now is about the sort of 90 kilos or something per person per year. Wow. We have been as high as 120. I think we were the kings of meat-eating in, in Australia. I think that there's now, uh, I think Hong Kong beats us now, which is kind of interesting because the average meat-eating on the planet is sort of uh, 30 kilos per person per year. That's so a
1: huge carbon footprint.
0: That's- if everyone ate as much meat as, as, as we did, animal meat, game over. There is no land that yeah. could support that. So so the problem actually is, is that uh, most people, globally, don't eat a lot of meat, but in developing countries, they aspire to eat more meat. So from, from a V2 perspective, we want to solve our pro- the problem in Australia and have the best plant-based meat in Australia so that other countries would kind of say, well, maybe it's kind of cool to be like the Australians are doing. They adopt plant-based meat almost, almost they don't even go to meat, they go straight to plant-based meat. Yeah. And that would be, that's really important because if we ignore the de- developing countries and, and that's why V2 is so focused on Asia um, and China because that's where the biggest meat consumption is in the world.
1: How are you shifting that? What is, it, what is it that you're doing specifically to shift that? Obviously, you're making plant-based meat, but that's the first step.
0: Job one, plant-based meat as much as possible, just the quantity, because today our carbon footprint is um, two and a half kilos of carbon per kilo of meat. Uh, difficult to know, is that good or bad? Well, uh, beef will be 70. Yeah, so we're already sort of 30 times better. We think that we can get to carbon negative, and that's when it gets really interesting. When you eat meat and you know that it's good for the planet. And the way we're doing that is by reducing our carbon footprint, so renewable energy in our factories, etc. But then when you start looking at our ingredients, which are things like uh, canola oil and soy, you can grow those crops in a way that sequesters carbon into the soil. And that means that you end up with a net carbon negative. And then we add it, add it all together. And this is work that we're doing with the CSIRO. Mm. And we have a roadmap that we think we're gonna be carbon negative in about four years. It's going to take a lot of work because we've got to grow the varieties of soy in Australia. There's, and there's
1: already some great farmers up in Queensland that are doing this. They're experimenting with
0: this. Absolutely. And we're working with CSIRO on varieties of soy. We're working with companies. There's a wonderful company called Loam that, that does carbon sequestration, sort of builds all this lovely sort of black sort of strands in the soil. That's fungus. That's, a, that's fungus and bacteria working together with the plants in a sort of symbiotic relationship. That is, that is good agriculture. Yeah. Healthy soils, healthy plants. And uh, the good news is is we, is we can destroy soils very easily. That, that's use of fertilizers and pesticides. That's kind of, that's, that's the average sort of cropping. But we can also restore soils using the science um, and we can restore them quite quickly back to a really healthy uh, sort of carbon-filled state, yeah. which is what they should be. And if we do that, you could sequester an enormous amount of carbon. It's, it's almost like a, it's like a third to a half of the total carbon footprint wow. of Australia we could sequester back in the soil. So we're trying to stimulate that sort of uh, research and that sort of activity. And
1: I also want to sort of give people an understanding of where you come from and you know the world that you've come from and sort of where you've landed in, in, in terms of the great work that you're doing now because I suppose your approach is so well-informed by the industries that you've kind of traversed and the roles that you've been in. You spent a long time leading research and development teams at you know some of the biggest international food companies, and you got a phone call from the CSIRO for a collaboration with Hungry Jacks. You got this phone call, what happened?
0: Well, at the time I was, I was teaching innovation at, at UTS and I was consulting to a number of companies. The reason CSIRO gave me the call is they knew me. I, I had consulted to them, I'd done projects with them when I was an R&D director, um, and... Uh, and they said, would I be interested in, in doing a startup? And they asked me if I would look at, at, the po- at the possibility of forming a company and leveraging some of the science that CSIRO had, because they had a lot of, they'd done a lot of research in meat. They understood meat pretty well, uh, but was there, this, was there an opportunity for Australia to do something um, like what they were doing in the US? And I took a look at it. I said, look, give me a couple of months and I'll, I'll look at it to see if there's an opportunity. Um, and then, but within about a, a month, I went back to uh, Syro and to Jack Cowan, who's the the guy behind Hungry Jacks, and I said, I'm in. I, I want to do this thing, and then and that's when we formed V2V2 V2 Food. Um, and we called it V2 because it's like version two of the food system. You yeah. know, it's we knew that the food system is broken. How can we use this plant-based meat thing? to like, kind of figure out a, a system that, that works. The human population is gonna stay pretty high. That's not gonna change. So yeah. we better figure out how do we work within the limits of the planet. And then what we did is we just worked like hell to, to develop a burger that tasted fantastic. But at the same time, I was always thinking about mince because burgers is good, but we eat a lot more mince. And then I thought, well, beef is good, but what about pork? You know, If I'm gonna be in Asia, I better do pork, and what about lamb, and what about chicken? First of all, there's a that we like meat. I'm like you, I'm not a vegan. Our products are vegan, but I'm not a vegan. And and it it occurred to me when I started the business, it's only just, just over three years ago, and I was at a conference in San Francisco to try and find out about this sort of cool old protein thing. And I was in the room with, with a lot of Californians, a lot of CEOs of alternative protein companies. And I was feeling really uncomfortable, and I, I kind of realized that one of the reasons I was uncomfortable is because I wasn't a vegan, and and they were. I have a huge amount of respect for, for people who, who have the willpower to be a vegan, because it's really hard, because m- most of us love meat, and it's kind of in our genes. It's
1: because we're they, sort of pre-programmed. Yeah, right? there's
0: a nutritional advantage in meat, uh, which we would have had as hunter-gatherers. You know, it's pretty dangerous to go and kill an animal. You know, if you could have just foraged berries or something, that would have been a lot safer. But we're programmed to, to want meat, We can't unwire our genes. That's that's a given. It is how it is. So let's make uh, plant-based meat that actually gives you the same hit. We're humans. We have these instincts. Let's not try and pretend that we can be better who we are. You know, we we can try really hard, and some vegans can. But there's a few things that are going on. One is that um, we're very conservative with food. I bet you, if you asked, if you said, what are your top sort of five meals, they're probably the same top five meals that your mum. Cooked you.
1: It's, I was going to say it's also very cultural. Right? I'm Palestinian Lebanese, and yeah. my mother, you know, there's nothing that she doesn't make without meat. Yeah, <laughs> it's a very meat-heavy diet.
0: So, so the job to be done, because we can't tell people to change your diet. We know that never works, because you go back to the things that you love. So, what we need to do is we need to fit our our plant-based meat into the dishes that you love to eat. And so that, that's the job to be done. So the meat that we create. Yeah, it's a burger, but it's also mince. I mean, in Australia, for example, uh, mince is the biggest form of meat. Yeah. And what do you do with the mince? Well, you make a spag bol or a chili conch or a... a, a or a kofta,
1: if you're a Or Chinese. a kofta,
0: yeah. And so our meat's got to work in exactly the same way, so you don't have to change your diet. You just carry on eating, but it's plant-based instead.
1: You have said the word burger several times, obviously, for obvious reasons. You make burgers, uh, you burger meat. But what makes the perfect burger? And how do you convince people or I suppose emotionally help them connect with the idea that you're still having this scrumptious, delicious, juicy burger, but it's plant-based.
0: Yeah, I think um, when, when we started V2, I, I went out there and I ate a, more burgers than I've ever eaten. The thing about meat is that it's 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 not homogeneous uh, and you never really think about it, but if you think about a burger, imagine a burger and and what are you eating? And, and you see there's a sort of a crust on there and then there's different textures, and then you you put it in your mouth, and you you bite on it, and it sort of squelches, and it sort of squirts sort of liquid, and then there's, oh my god,
1: stop! I'm so hungry. You guys hungry?
0: <laughs> there's fatty mouthfeel and that fat is delicious, and oh. it, it smells sort of grilled. And and then you realise that it's a really complex problem, and how do you reproduce all of that in in a plant based meat? And that's the scientific problem to be solved. Um, and we have like 38 different individual projects, all coming together to give you the Rebel Whopper at, at Hungry's Jacks is a V2 Whopper and it gives you all of that sort of meat experience, but mm. it's, it's plant-based.
1: If we are going to have a genuine impact on bettering the planet and in, you know, in turn climate change, where do you start and what's going on in the lab? I kind of want you to take us inside that space so we can see and feel the process. Because I think if people feel the process and they understand what goes on behind the scenes, if you like, then it makes it not only more believable, but you actually genuinely then feel the change that you're contributing to by consuming plant-based meat.
0: You start with a, a, a source of protein and it's gonna be something like soy, or it could be pea, or it could be a, it'll, it'll be a legume because legumes have a high amount of protein, yeah? So you, that's where you start. We chose soy because it has a really good nutritional profile. So, and also it doesn't taste it very much. So job one get your protein, try and make sure it doesn't taste of anything, because you don't want your plant-based burger or your mince to taste of soy, you want it to taste of meat. So start off with something that doesn't taste of anything. And we, we've got research projects to, to make sure our soy doesn't taste of anything. And you've got the soy, and then you've got the color system and the fat system and the flavor system. And you, you, you've you got a bowl and you put some water and you sort of mush it up. And then you then put in some other fats to make sure it sizzles and it, and all of that is is kind of, um, these ingredients come together, yeah. and then you put it down a burger line, for example. So it'll go down a, a, a like a meat factory, a burger line, or a mince packing line, or a, um, and then that's basically the product. And then that will then go to a, a restaurant if it's Hungry Jacks, so or it'll go to a, uh, another restaurant who will take the mince and turn it into a dish, or it'll go to Coles uh, and Woolworths, and you can buy it in the supermarket, and and it'll be the same price as meat or cheaper because that's our goal. And it'll and you can cook a spag bowl or a chili conch or a kofta, um, yeah. and it'll just work. And, so and our job is just to make sure it just works.
1: I mean, how do you make plant-based meat that bleeds, just like real meat? Because well, that is something you're working on right now, yeah? Yeah,
0: no, we are, we are. It's, um, we identified all of the big technical challenges that we need to do research in, and one of them was blood. I mean, well, blood, it's not strictly blood, it's called, it's called myoglobin, but it's the, it's the red in the, in the, in yeah, the meat. Well you, and how do you do that? Well, I mean, there's a number of ways of doing it. You could kind of put blood in there, but. Uh, vegans wouldn't be very happy with that, but there is a there is a pigment um, which is also an iron based pigment um, that that exists in algae, um, and we discovered this and we've 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 patented it and um, we have been working for for more than a couple of years now with with UTS and with a with a Dutch company and with the CSIRO in trying to figure out can we can we grow this sort of deep red color. In algae, and uh, we're, we're, we now have um, algae farms with this deep red thing. It, it, it's kind of a bit weird. It is a bit weird because it sort of almost looks, looks like weird a di- dialysis. Weird but fascinating. Yeah. But that could be a solution. What's great about it is that um, we've, we're doing some work again with the CSIRO to look at the iron bioavailability of, the, of this red pigment. So if we can crack this, and it's early days, it's not in any product today. We, we need to do regulatory stuff because it's, a, it's, a, it's an algae. We don't normally eat the algae, so we need to make sure it's, it's all safe. But we're going through that process this year. Um, and uh, we think that by the end of the year, you will be able to buy product with a V2 uh, heme in it. So it'll be, wow. it'll be our uh, color system. At the moment, our product is red, but it's things like beetroot and, and just natural um, sort of colors. The difference is, is that the algae, it's red when it's raw, but when you cook it,
1: so, it loses yeah.
0: the color. So, you know, the outside is brown and the inside is red. And, and that color change when you're cooking tells you that you've cooked enough. Yeah. So again, part of the job to be done is to make it exactly the same experience so that your mum or your grandmum, when they cook it, they Don't. know they know when to stop because yeah, the colours change and, and it's a bit red on the middle. The magic happens when you cook it. And that's when the chemistry starts when you cook meat. And ours is exactly smells, the same. And yeah. All of that chemistry happens when you cook it. And 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 actually the red stuff is part of that chemistry.
1: Speaking of solving problems, you know, a lot of the work that you do it, is obviously it's innovating, it, it's ideas, it's experimenting, it's using science and testing things out, you know, to create a, a solution to something as big and grand and scary as, as climate change. What does innovating mean to you? Because it's something you also teach. You know, you share your wisdom around innovation with people.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing I teach about innovating is, is first of all, what's the, figure out what is the problem you're trying to solve. I mean, innovating is, is solving a problem. We've got a planetary problem that needs to be solved. So how do we solve that problem? And that's the way I always look at it. And you frame it up in terms of a, here it's a food system problem and a problem with meat that needs to get solved. And then you start breaking it down. And this is probably the biggest problem that I've ever worked on and, and also the most satisfying because if we crack it, we actually do something useful.
1: And so how do you teach innovation? Because that is a big part of your world too. How do you impart the knowledge around how to innovate?
0: So innovation is not a, a mad scientist Sort of in a lab, that's the image of a, a, that might be an inventor, but that's not an innovator. An innovator is somebody who can take something all the way through to have an impact. And and what we teach is that innovation is not in the realms of a mad scientist, is actually you can innovate across all of the different fields. And then when you get all of them together, and this is what we teach at at UTS, it's called transdisciplinary, you've got to get the scientist talking to the lawyer, talking to the marketeer, talking to the business economist, And you bring them all together in the room and they all have different ways of of inventing and innovating and you bring them together because innovation always happens on the edges of the field so so it's it's a a a really great example of where bringing people together to work on a problem will get much better outcomes than if it's just one mad scientist or one marketeer trying to solve the problem
1: i think it's really important to compare how Australia is doing, you know, in, in to other parts of the world. What are the challenges around innovation in Australia, you know, in terms of the way we develop, how we make the product, yeah. how we cook it, how we get it out there?
0: Uh, what's really interesting about Australia is actually we have some of the best universities in the world and, and, and there's not, they, they measure themselves, you know, there's ranking systems and stuff and actually Australia are right up there in terms of their academic uh, performance. Um, best scientists, best engineers in the world. But then... When they measure themselves on impact, and there's other measures, you know, what's the, you know, how much economic uh, value is derived from the from from Australian universities? Mm. It's one of the lowest conversion rates. Australia, for some reason, has sort of lost that 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 ability to convert the science into products and into activity. And that's where kind of companies like V2 come in, is is working with all of the universities and the CSIRO to try and take the science and turn it into something which which is valuable. And um, so that's that's how we work. We don't actually have an enormous R&D part. We've we've got a few people that work with me on on the science, but most of my scientists are actually sitting in universities or in the CSIRO, Um, and we work with them every day. And we we demand results, and we're, we're enthusiastic about the science. But this isn't something that's going to be a paper that gets written and then published in three years' time. No. that's going to go into my food product.
1: There's sort of great access points and innovations that are occurring on how we can have a positive impact on climate change. Um, How do you think Australia is perceived in terms of how we're innovating in response to the impacts of climate change?
0: Well, Australia has the worst carbon footprint per capita of anyone on the planet, apart from Qatar. I think Qatar trumps us. But apart from that, we have the highest carbon footprint per person of anyone on the planet. So it's deeply <laughs> embarrassing. And, and okay, this isn't political, but I sometimes have to say when I'm in Europe, I, I don't necessarily say that I'm Australian because it's kind of, we don't have a great reputation when it comes to uh, uh, fossil fuel, um, mm. but it's changing. I mean, and the good news is our our capacity to be the solution rather than the problem is enormous. I mean, photo, photovoltaics, I mean, a lot of the science of photovoltaics is Australian. So it's like we can solve this it's not it's not that it's not physically possible but you need to get the political but, will and you've got to get the, the but movement but it's also
1: going. the consumer the everyday person I think that's a huge part of the problem right because yeah. I think we're sort of desensitized to the idea that we can have a positive impact on the changing planet yeah. and we can contribute in we a can. positive way to climate change we can like what it, from your perspective as an innovator in the world of food what is, it, what is the final frontier? Like, how do we really make people understand that it's the simple things, the kind of banal simple things that you do day to day that can actually shift the carbon footprint, can actually shift the impact that we're having on the planet?
0: So changing your diet, plant-based, single biggest thing you can do, is figure out how you transport yourself. Another big thing you can do. Um, think about the stuff that you buy how much stuff do you need? Every bit of stuff that you have has a carbon footprint associated with it, and everyone can do those three things, and, it, and, and that would probably solve more than half of the problem. Those yeah. just those things. Companies like us, we got to make it easier for people so that so that they can afford to feed themselves. It's got it mustn't be more expensive. It mustn't be more difficult. And I think that's that's the responsibility of entrepreneurs and, and companies to figure out how to change the system. So we can just be good humans doing what we love to do. And in doing that, we're also good for the planet. And that's the key problem that we have to solve. That's the end game. uh, And there's a lot of companies out there in Australia that are trying to solve it in in just that way.
1: I'm curious to know how you would, how do you think that, you know, us as Australians will be eating in, 20 years time, it and will be
0: the same dishes, but it'll be plant-based. So right. it'll be exactly you'll be eating your kofta that your grandmum cooked for you, and that kofta will be made by V2 Food or someone else, and it'll taste absolutely delicious, and you will just love it, and you won't even think about it, and you might not even think that you've just saved the planet. You'll be doing what you love, eating the food that you Subconscious. love, right. and we've figured it out so that so that that will actually be carbon negative and restore the planet. Uh, and you won't. You will just have a wonderful conversation with the people that you share the food that you love with, and you won't even think about it.
1: That is a perfect way to wrap up our wonderful conversation this morning. Join me in thanking Nick Hazel. Thank you so much. <laughs> you can listen to this podcast wherever you subscribe to your podcasts on all those platforms. And visit 100 Climate Conversations, the exhibition, which is in this gorgeous building, the Powerhouse Museum, uh, or go online to 100climateconversations.com.